Good morning. It's a privilege to be here again. It's been a, a little while, actually. It's been six months, I think, since my last kind of opportunity to deliver a sermon. Um, although I was supposed to be on the schedule in June. Um, but um, as many of you know, I think my dad passed away in May um, after a short illness. So John very ably stepped in. So thank you, John. Uh, and thank you to everyone else as well for your support and prayers. It's been really welcome. Um, anyway, I've been using the last couple of sermons to look at David. And I want to continue that today. So who is David and what makes him who he, who he is? Now, David's mentioned about a thousand times in the Bible. And some of the stories are really well known. We saw one of them today, which is probably well known to Christians and non-Christians alike. We might say there's just something about David, something that makes him interesting something that keeps people writing about him for three centuries or so. And if you recall, we took a look at uh, David, a man after God's own heart, and we looked at what it meant that God was with David. And now I wanted to close by taking a look at David's faith. What did David's faith and his repentance look like? And what lessons might we learn from it today. And to do that, we're going to take a look at Psalm 51. This psalm explores the depths of David's guilt, but it also looks at the furthest reaches of salvation. It's a psalm that's shown the generations of sinners the way home, long after they thought they were beyond recall. It's the psalm of a changed heart. It brings together the painful reality of sin and the wonder of divine mercy. Now, there are going to be different people sitting here today. Some will have a lesser view of sin and the glory of God's mercy. They won't necessarily understand it. This psalm is for you. And there may be others who think they're totally committed. They're beyond needing to be saved. They're too committed to blow it again. This psalm is for you. And there are others who have fallen headlong into sin and they can't see any way out. This psalm is for you. And finally, there are others who know the daily battle against sin. Guess what? This psalm is for you. So let's read it together. It's on page 573 of your Bible. And it reads like this, Psalm 51. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So, this may be one of the most deeply kind of passionate and transparent psalms of confession. David pours out his heart to God, asking for forgiveness after Nathan the prophet had exposed his sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. The title itself refers to the events recounted in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, but it's worth noting that between the David of Bathsheba and Uriah and the David of this psalm, there stands in human terms at least Nathan the prophet. Nathan simply speaks to David the word of God and the power of God's word becomes strikingly evident as David responds. Never underestimate your sharing of the God's word with anybody. And from the outset, David's completely transparent. He casts himself on God's mercy, God's free and unmerited favor. And David knows that God's unfailing love is the basis for this mercy. David had been given another word from God in chapter 7 to Samuel through the prophet Nathan. It was God's promise to David. And in it, God says of David, my love will never be taken away from him. For all his unworthiness, David knows that he still belongs. And David knows that God is compassionate to the truly repentant. He, he asks God to blot out his sin, to wash it away, to cleanse him. It's as if David is comparing himself to dirty clothes that need to be washed and washed and washed. He knows that guilt makes him unfit for God's presence. His sin is a barrier to fellowship with God. And he needs God to remove it. David doesn't hide from it or make excuses for it. He then says that it's against you, God, you only have I sinned. Which is initially a bit surprising, given the terrible things that he had done with Bathsheba and Uriah. He had abused Bathsheba. He had sent Uriah to die. And subsequently, his own child with Bathsheba dies. Now, the Bible doesn't deny that sin has dreadful consequences and can cause untold suffering. But David's perspective here is the one he shared when Nathan first confronted him. I have sinned against the Lord, David said. He recognizes the deeper truth that ultimately all sin is a grievous offense against God. And the terrible effects of sin at the human level are insignificant when compared to the rupture that sin has with God. Notice that David calls his sin evil in the sight of God. Now, evil is a shocking word. 
We all use it, but probably to describe other people and other people's actions. What Adolf Hitler did, that was evil. Pol Pot, evil. Joseph Fritzl, Fred West, both evil. But what about us? What about my actions? What about my pride? Well, it's a weakness. My outburst of anger, it's a little slip. My greed is misplaced desire. Now, let's call this what it is. This is confession. If evil is the opposite or absence of good, then my pride and selfishness is evil. My ingratitude towards God for his rich mercy is evil. My gossip is evil. In his letter to the Roman church, Paul acknowledges that sin is part of who we are. In chapter 7 he writes, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. What a wretched man he adds. And he asks, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And he answers his own question, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. But more on that um, a bit later. In the meantime, David completely accepts God's right to judge him and also to decide the verdict that he passes down. And verse 4 reminded me of the scene at Jesus' crucifixion. If you remember, Jesus was crucified with two robbers, two thieves, two sinners, either side of him. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. David recognizes that he was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, David couldn't have committed sins at birth, let alone at conception. So he's showing that he understands that the sinful nature of humans is inherited from Adam's sin and passed down generation to generation to generation. And all humans do is act. We've already heard Paul write about, his, write about his sinful nature. And in Romans chapter 5, he writes about how this came about. Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in its way, death came to all people because all sinned. From birth, we are joined together with Adam. We are joined to his sin. And we need a rescuer. But more on that later. So now we come back to our psalm and David urges God to cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Now I had to do some Googling here. We looked at pictures, didn't we? Hyssop was a, a kind of plant. I think it's called marjoram as well, the leaves of. Um, uh, but it was great at holding on to liquid. So they used it to cleanse those who were ceremonially unclean by dipping the leaves in water or blood and sprinkling it over them. And you can read all about it in Leviticus. It was also hyssop that the Israelites used to daub paint on their door frames. And you can read all about that in Exodus. 
But for now, the darkness of his knowledge about himself in verses 3 to 5, now it might have led to despair. But instead, it energizes David's praying. David prays that he hear joy and gladness. David prays, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. When God reveals our sin to us, it's painful. It's never pleasant to be confronted by how unholy we are. But like a doctor resetting a fractured bone, it's God who breaks, God who sets, and God who heals. He asks God again to hide your face from my sins, to blot out all my iniquity. But above all, he recognizes that God needs to create in me a new heart. You see, to be truly repentant, to be truly free of sin, there needs to be a creation of a new heart, a pure heart. David knows that his sin has so tainted him that he needs a completely new heart, a heart only God could give him. Only God can create. And David did not want God to take your Holy Spirit from me. He didn't want the Spirit to leave him the way the Spirit had left Saul. And the language shows that he's not an unregenerate man. This man had received the Holy Spirit. He was in relationship with God. This was a prayer for holiness. In fact, David is so ashamed by his sin... Um, that it's a sign that the Spirit is working in him. Have you ever been so discouraged by your sin that you've wondered, how can God love me? Surely I can't be a Christian. Well, take comfort. Take comfort that knowing the grief of sin is a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you, causing you to hate what God hates, causing you to hate sin, to be grieved by sin. I read somewhere that until our sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. I thought that was quite a nice little thing. But David goes further. He desires to teach others the lessons he has learned. He wants to sing of God's righteousness. But look at verse 15. He says, open my lips, Lord. David asked God to make him so joyful about his salvation that he can't help but proclaim it to others. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. The joy of forgiveness should compel us to share the good news with friends, family, co-workers, and neighbors. David desires that God deliver me from the guilt but even deliverance is too narrow a word. In reality, he wants to praise God's righteousness. And God's crowning work is to make the sinner righteous. David wants God to deliver him from the guilt and the shame of sin. He wants to be right with God again. And David realizes that God wants true repentance from the inside out. God does not delight in sacrifice or take pleasure in burnt offerings. No sacrifice on its own is sufficient for forgiveness. Sacrifice has to be accompanied by a repentant heart. Sacrifices need to be offered with a broken and contrite heart. Sacrifices offered with the right heart attitude. And David's own experience taught him that getting right with God was a matter of the heart. 
and he finishes by asking for God's blessing on his people. So it seems to me that what we're dealing with here, what we're seeing in Psalm 51, is David's repentance and his faith. But what are they? What do we mean by repentance and faith? Sometimes scripture presents faith and repentance as two different responses. At times the summons is to repent, as with John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Peter also urges his listeners on the day of Pentecost to repent and be baptized, every one of you. On other occasions, though, the appropriate response to the gospel is to have faith or believe. When Paul told his prison guard what he must do to be saved, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And in Hebrews, we're told without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But when Jesus preached in Galilee, he explained, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. And in Acts 20, Paul says, uh, Paul says that he has declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So clearly repentance and faith belong together. They are two aspects of conversion, but equally essential to it. Repentance implies faith, and faith implies repentance. One cannot exist without the other. So if conversion means turning, a spiritual turn, a turning from sin to God, then the turning from sin is called repentance, and the turning to God is called faith. Neither can occur without the other. It's not that a person first turns from sin and later trusts God, or first trusts God and later turns from sin. They must occur at the same time. So think of it this way, it's a handy way of remembering. So we've got some audience participation I want to see. You all take part. Hold up your hand. Excellent, excellent, it's going well so far. Take a look at your palm. Take a look. Take a look at your back of your hand. They're different, right? But they always come together. They are different, but always together. You can't have a palm of a hand without the back. And you can't have the back without the palm. Keep your hands up, people. Now, if the back of your hand is repentance and the front of your hand is faith, again, they're different. But they always come together. And sometimes in the Bible, we're looking more clearly at repentance. Hands up, people. Sometimes we're looking at repentance, but doesn't mean that faith isn't there. And sometimes in the Bible we're looking at faith, but it doesn't mean repentance isn't there. Now, last act, and then you can put your hands down. I want you to grab hold of the Bible in front of you. Hold it up. Do you see how you've got hold of your Bible, people? Do you see which part of your hand you've used? You've grabbed hold of it by faith. It's our faith that grabs hold of the word of God. Relax. When we turn to Christ for salvation from sin, 
we are simultaneously turning away from sin that we're asking Christ to save us from. If that were not true, then turning, then turning to Christ for salvation could hardly be genuine. A person who genuinely turns to Christ for salvation must at the same time release the sin to which they cling. Neither repentance nor faith comes first. They must come together. Now some people do not want us to speak about sin. Some people don't think we should preach about it. They don't like to hear about God's righteous burning anger against sin. And they don't want us to speak about it. But if there's no mention of the need for repentance in our preaching, then the gospel message becomes something like, believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be fine. Without any mention of repentance at all, it becomes half a gospel. You see, that version of the gospel doesn't call for wholehearted commitment to Christ. If we're wholeheartedly committed to Christ, we must turn from sin. If we preach the need for faith without repentance, then we're preaching only half of what we need to say. And it will lead to people being deceived, thinking they've heard the message, when in fact they've only heard part of it. If we present something other than faith and repentance, then we're preaching a cheap gospel. We're giving people false security that just because they've learned the facts or prayed a prayer, that they're saved. But in reality, with no true repentance, with no change of life, they're not. We need to speak in terms of a personal response to an invitation from Christ himself. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But these aren't just words spoken by a religious leader of the past. Every non-Christian hearing these words should be encouraged to think of them, those words that Jesus Christ speaks now, even now, at this very moment. He's speaking to you individually. This is a genuine personal invitation that seeks a personal response from each who hear it. If we come to Christ and trust him to save from us from sin, we cannot any longer cling to it. We must willingly give it up. Therefore, any genuine gospel proclamation must include an invitation. An invitation to make a conscious decision to renounce sin and come to Christ and ask Christ for forgiveness. Now, it's true to say that initial saving and faith, repent, uh, faith and repentance occur only once in our life. And when they occur, they constitute true conversion. However, it's also true to say that the heart attitude of repentance and faith only begin at conversion. Each day we should have heartfelt repentance for sin that we've committed and faith in Christ to provide for our needs and empower us in our Christian life. 
David spoke of a broken and contrite heart. The word contrite means bowed down. Bowed down with the awareness of his bankruptcy. The fact that his inner spirit was crushed with the sense of his guilt. Do we have a genuine and deep sorrow for our rebellion? Are we determined to do it differently? A, a contrite heart doesn't seek to rationalize or explain it or excuse or defend or justify. It doesn't try to fool God or other people or ourselves. It recognizes that God demands truth and honesty. It doesn't seek to blame circumstances or other people or God for our own failure. And when we become aware of our sins, we know that God isn't interested in empty apologies. God doesn't want cheap promises or resolutions. God cares nothing for our efforts to balance evil with being a little bit more good. God desires a broken and contrite heart. One of true sacrifice who is determined to turn from sin to forsake it, to abandon it. David recognizes the filth and grime that he's covered in, the filth and the grime of his sin, and he wants to be cleansed of it. He said, purge me, purify me, wash me, blot out my iniquities, erase them, obliterate them, wipe them away, remove them. He said, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Sin had to go. And it's only when we experience God's cleansing that we know the joy of his salvation. You see, God has a plan that never fails. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us all from sin. All sin. All times. All people. All ways. So for those who don't yet tr trust Jesus for salvation, let me ask you, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with the bad things that you've done and thought? How are you going to change? The Christian gospel has the answer. And I'm pleading with you, listen to David's story. Listen to David's words. David had no idea what it would cost God to forgive him. But a thousand years later, Jesus entered the world and lived the life David should have lived and died the death he should have died. God didn't demand payment from David because he planned before the foundation of the world to pay it himself in Jesus Christ. The only way to escape the wrath of God is to accept the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Jesus bore the wrath of sin upon the cross to grant forgiveness. He became what David was and what we are so that David and we could become what he is. God passed over David's sins because he planned to lay them all at Jesus' feet at the cross. In the end, he didn't pass over sin at all. By faith, David was joined to Christ. And on the cross, he died with him. And in the resurrection, he rose with him. By faith, we do the same. If David was forgiven, we can be too. But what did David do to get this grace? 
He did it work his way into it. He can't bring, bring uh, Uriah back from the dead. He can't bring his son back from the dead. He couldn't undo the adultery he committed with Bathsheba. He couldn't change anything in his past. He couldn't do anything in the future to make up for it. All he could do was go low enough before God to be forgiven by him. And that's exactly what happened. And this means for us that there's never a point in which we've sinned our way so far from God that we can't return to him. We are never so far or so bad to be saved by Christ. Because that's what he does. He saves sinners. And so what we must do to be saved by God is admit that we're sinners and plead for his grace. If we're willing to do that, if we're willing to go to that low place, to call ourselves evil, to identify with David that we have sinned, then we can receive with David the same grace David received from God. And we can have the joy of salvation. Jesus always meets sinners with grace. The only sinners he turns away from are the ones who have no need for him. We should know that sin has separated us from the fellowship with God. The fellowship for which we were made. And that this places us in danger of eternal judgment. We should come to Christ seeking to have this sin and guilt removed and desire to have a genuine relationship with God that will last forever. Now this involves a personal trust in Christ. Not just belief in facts about Christ. Saving faith is a gift of God in our hearts that leads us to trust him alone to trust him for our forgiveness, righteousness, and salvation. And it's only available to us because of what Christ has done for us. Now, I don't know how many church services you attend. I don't know what good things you do. But I'm here to tell you that your goodness is not enough. You can't be good enough to deserve forgiveness. No one can. Not you, not me, not anyone. So stop trying to satisfy your own guilt. You can't do it. There's no way. And I don't care how bad you are, you can't be bad enough to be out of God's reach. What you need is a saviour. Jesus Christ is that saviour. So I finish with some questions. Will you come to him? Will you come to him and ask him to cleanse your heart? Will you allow him to transform your life? Will you experience the, sal the salvation he and only he can provide? This is the moment to decide and ask Jesus to change your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for Psalm 51 in particular. Thank you for causing it to be written. Thank you for the work that you did in David's life. 
thank you that we now still, 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later, can still read of the work you did in that man's life. And thank you for the example that he still shows to us. That if we bring ourselves low enough, that if we're honest enough about ourselves, if we think deeply enough about how we've gone wrong, then and only then might we be able to come to you to be cleansed, to be saved through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.